Spock, how long since you've worked out in null gravity combat exercises? Last week with you, Captain. Let's go. Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. I'm Steve Morris, and I'm ready to team up and go on an adventure. You might as well go on a mission impossible, because <laughs> <laughs> that's certainly what this episode feels like. Of course, we are talking about the Jihad, which is the last episode of season one of the animated series. We have already reached the end of season one of the animated series, of course, a lot shorter than the uh, first season of the original series and just like we started our deep dive into the animated series with our very special guest uh, we are ending season one with the return of very special guest he is the author of this beautiful book called star trek the official guide to the animated series which is the loving tribute to an overlooked an underrated chapter in Star Trek history as we have been proving week after week during our deep dives with one really good or even great episode after another. Welcome back and happy birthday, Aaron Harvey. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I love being here. It's a great birthday present. I can just spend the day talking about Star Trek. Yes. So you could not only spend the day talking about Star Trek, but your Star Trek, the actual <laughs> series, which you've always been a champion for yes. leading up to the publication of your book. So we're going to start. Jerry O'Connell thought that I worked on Star Trek the animated series i'm like dude i'm just a few years younger than you are or older than you are. it's like so that was funny uh yeah no i'm I've, I've always i've loved it I, you know even when people are like there wasn't an animated star trek because there wasn't an internet that you could check things on and it was proving its existence was actually part of just the 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 battle to get people's eyes on it well what what did you think of the last episode of season one I like it for its sort of D&D campaign feel. I know it's also Mission Impossible, but it, it feels very much like, you know, they have their different roles with all the characters. And, and I think that was, I thought that was really cool. I, I love learning about, you know, the Vidala and just these different races that kind of disappear, but are now coming back mentioned in Lower Decks and Picard. And, you know, it's, it's sprinkling back into the canon more, which is cool. What about you, Steve? What was your take on the Jihad? I totally liked it. I really did. I like the, um, it's just like Aaron said, like the sort of putting the team together and going off on an adventure and the, it's a different, it's taking, you know, Kirk and Spock and putting them under different circumstances and we face a bunch of different challenges and I like the characters they introduced. I think it was a fun episode. It is definitely a fun episode. Is it just me, Steve Morris, or did this episode kind of remind you in some weird way, you know, teaming up with other people of the, uh, the, the Savage Curtain? Oh, I hadn't thought about it, but no, I totally see your point. Yeah. What about you, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, no, I I never thought about that either. That's that is, yeah, it's exactly that. Well, that just, is what this podcast is all about. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but but you know, before we get into the episode itself, so so you know, Hal Sutherland directed all the episodes from the first season. So now that we're at the end of the first season, and of course, you know, the animated series isn't like the original series where you went from episode to episode to episode. A lot of these episodes were all put into production at once because they're animated, they're being worked on uh, at the same time as other episodes. But uh, what was sort of the the mindset for Hal Sutherland and Lou Scheimer at the end of, of the course, they're from filmation, uh, you know, at the end of the first season and sort of like, you know, looking ahead to the second season? 
I think they were at that point, Dorothy was about to leave as well. So they, I think that they were trying to deal with like, just make sure that everything's set for the next season. Um, you know, they got a new director in, but I think it was just making sure that, that it continued as, as good as it was. Um, and at that time also Bob Klein, who was one of the uh, animators kind of sort of stepped up more into like an art director role. Filmation was very regimented, so he's not officially that, but he kind of became that in some ways because when I've talked with him, he's like, oh, I designed this, I changed this. We, you know, Basically, it's suggesting, and, and the suggestions were just done. We spoke to Bob Klein thanks to thanks to you, so uh, thank you for that. We had him join us for the time trap. Uh, and, and just um, uh, overall... I have to say that, you know, more often than not throughout the first season, Steve and I have really discovered uh, that, you know, many of these episodes were were really strong, even just by by the standards of Star Trek, you know, taking away the grading and on a curve like I often did with the animated series. Uh, there were so many of these episodes were were rediscoveries because I I I forgot about some of these episodes, even though I saw them so many years ago. And the jihad is another example of an episode that I, I would say, completely forgot about it. But I certainly had a lot of epiphanies watching it. Uh, one of them being that it kind of felt a little like, uh, like the Savage Curtain, and uh, you know, bringing Kirk and Spock down and teaming them up with other people, uh, not from from you know Vulcan or Earth history. But of course, it was directed by Hal Sutherland. The production number was twenty two oh one four making it sort of the 14th episode of the animated series to be produced. The Jihad aired on January 12, 1974, making it overall the 95th episode of Star Trek to be broadcast. And like I said, this is the last episode of the first season. The writer for this episode, Aaron, is... Stephen Candell. Who wrote? Uh, shoot, uh... Oh, well, he's the mud guy. He wrote Mud's oh, right. My Mud yes. for the original series. Yeah. And he also wrote Mud's Passion, Passion. for yeah. the animated series. So uh Stephen Candell, I did not know this, was a writer and story editor for Mission Impossible. So, Steve Morris, does that kind of sort of shed a light onto sort of where things kind of went with this episode? <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Yes. So uh he applied that concept to Star Trek and was quoted as saying. It was a message story and difficult to sell on network television. Network executives would have said, oh, God, what are you doing? This is a message story. So I jumped on that opportunity to drop it into a Star Trek format, which we did. The final draft of his teleplay for the Jihad was submitted on November 23rd, 1973. So I've always – that quote has always kind of like – I don't know what, what he was saying because it's like – the message, I guess, is, you know, religious jihads are bad. But I mean, like beyond that, like, what is the message? It, it doesn't feel like, you know, I mean, teaching it's, a, you... it's a peace message, too. I mean, yeah. it's a yeah, don't don't be warriors, be peace people. It's a I think it's a weird statement, too, because it's like, I mean, that's what Star Trek always had. You yeah. Know, interesting ideas and things to think about and messages within the. Yeah. I'm that's... wondering if we were adults in 1973, if that would have made more sense than now sure, like something sure. i think that might be given the vietnam war and everything like that that's going on that probably is more of a message at that point yeah well what's, what's interesting is that stephen kendall in you know when he wrote uh, mud's passion for the animated series you know there are, there are certain elements of that episode 
that are not for kids, like the concept of Scotty, Scotty drinking scotch and, you know, getting drunk and having a hangover, you know, that, that's not something that a parent watching making it up with like, rest. <laughs> being with an earshot of their kid watching Mud's Passion animated series going like, wait a minute, this isn't a kid show. <laughs> but I, I see, this is where I actually disagree, Scott, because I mean, if you watched an, Bugs Bunny, they were their characters got drunk and were hung over and like yeah. that you know that that's sort of a what what I think is actually weird I'm just speaking as a parent and maybe this is a digression we actually grew up from our era on violence and cruelty as regular staples of our of our Saturday morning cartoons great point particularly if you look at like Popeye if you look at you know all the Looney Tunes cartoons they're all really really violent and my kid who you've seen some of those things they that's not in cartoons anymore it is very like let's all work together to help each other and we'll learn about the ocean and the environment like that's that's what most kids cartoons are today and so it's like i actually think there was crazy stuff that we were watching when we were growing up yeah there absolutely was and steve that is an excellent point but remember that those looney tunes cartoons and those popeye cartoons were shown in movie theaters before adult grown-up films yep absolutely true yeah you know, the, 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 the grownups who were going to see like, you know, Casablanca, you know, all those, uh, you know, movies from the forties and the fifties, you know, and seeing those like super violent, uh, early, early Warner brothers cartoons with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. And, you know, even the rope runner to an extent, and it's definitely the Popeye cartoons, which were yeah. very, very violent. And then they watch like a, a grown-up film. Um, and then, you know, we as kids are watching that stuff on Saturday mornings, the Bugs Bunny rope runner show going like, you know, we love it. You yeah, know? it's great. But in this case, I didn't talk down to kids, which is nice. I mean, that's, you know, that was, I think, one of the benefits of Dorothy saying, we're not making a kiddie show. It wasn't f- supposed to be for children. And at one point, even Leonard Nimoy was trying to get it to move to the, e- the evenings. So it would have been like a, a 7 p.m. cartoon, which would Wow. Yeah. That the, would have been great. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like but Flintstones esque in some ways. But the Jihad was also was another episode that Stephen Kendall did. You know, he did not you know write down to his audience. Definitely, uh, like you said, uh, uh, Aaron uh, working with with Dorothy Fontana, who said just just write for Star Trek, just write a Star Trek episode. And you know, you have a couple elements here: a holy war, which is like definitely the first time we had a, a that kind of thing mentioned on the animated series. But also, uh, really, any Saturday morning cartoon, probably for that matter, right? But also, Lara. Yeah, the character Laura, voiced by Jane Webb. I mean, she is continually hitting on our intrepid Captain James T. Kirk, and he's the one who has to say, "Hey, you know, <laughs> not right now, lady. <laughs> we got work but- to do." <laughs> so uh, each week, I, as everyone who listens to the show knows, I go and look at what was going on when the episode came out and what some of the history is. And it's, I'll tell you, this week is a little weird. There weren't what I will call really, really big events like, you know, wars or, you know, presidential decisions or things like that. But there was a lot of small things going on the whole week. The troubles in Ireland, the whole week has explosions and assassination attempts and things like that. There are riots going on in India at this time. There were, again, multiple plane crashes that happened at this time. There was a mutiny of soldiers in Ethiopia, and there were tons of it just was a lot of violence and murder and stuff yeah. happening, you know, this week, but not a big one for me to point out to. So that's what was going on when uh, this episode aired. 
There's also, you know, Watergate was uh, underway and yeah. you know, that whole thing was brewing and getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, but you know what? Glad to hear there was a writer's strike, too. No, it would be over at that point, maybe, I guess. But yeah. So, oh, that's right. That's yeah. why well, you had some of the writers who exactly. were able to write for the animated series who weren't able to write for, for, for live action shows. But uh, yeah, so there you go. I mean, uh, um, you know, this f- final draft for uh, that she had was submitted on November 23rd. 1973 and you know then uh it aired a little more than a year later january 12th 1974 so shall we get into the show let's get in well as always with the animated series we series we start with the captain's log and with a star date the star date for the jihad was 5683.1 which is actually a little bit later than most of the episode star dates that we've encountered on the first season of the animated series. So Aaron, what I've been doing is I've been looking at the star date for the animated series episode, looking back to the star date order of the original series and kind of like, you know, plugging in where these adventures take place in relation to, you know, most of those uh, uh, episodes that aired in the third season. So star date 5683.1 puts the adventures of the Jihad in between Is There in Truth No Beauty and the Tholian web. So this is another, you know, mm-hmm. would-be third season episode, and it definitely feels like it. We're making a rendezvous with the Vidala asteroid on a unique mission. The Vidala are the oldest spacefaring race we know. They say something incredibly dangerous to the safety of our galaxy is developing, and they have sent for selected specialists, including Spock and myself. Uh, there are four starships orbiting the Vandala asteroid when we see when the episode opens. So so these uh, these starship designs were, of course, leftover starship designs from our, our friend Bob Klein. And also used again, it was in, used in Time Trap, but then before that was the, the designs for the first alien starship. So it's, it's been, they were very good at reusing things. <laughs> Nothing as, went to waste. As they should be. And then we end up in, in a shot, which it seems like there's a lot of these a bunch of different aliens standing in a circle shots throughout the animated <laughs> series. I feel like I've seen this kind of thing before. Well, I, I love that shot going back to the time trap where you see like the uh, ruling council, uh, you know, it's all these, uh, this menagerie of aliens uh, from both the original series and the animated series. Chris, you saw the Gorn there. Uh, so one of the aliens that we see here is T'Char, who plays a very, very crucial role in this episode as we will get into so uh, he's the hereditary prince from the bird-like species called the score. So w- at first sight, I thought, oh, this looks like the same race as Alik Ohm, the Aurelian from uh, the Enterprise Historian from yesteryear, but it's not the same. But back when we were doing that episode, Aaron, and I saw this bird-like, you know, uh, biped, you know, uh, intelligent creature – I thought back to that moment in the cage when Captain Pike wakes up and he sees the other creatures in the other cages. And for a split second, you see a bird-like creature sort of flapping its wings. This is in the cage, not in the menagerie because it was cut right. in the menagerie. So I'm wondering if that creature, if that alien uh, in captivity in the cage is either from the score or from, or an Aurelian, but – Maybe. I think that would have to be a retcon because people outside of, like, even in, probably in production of the animated series, wouldn't necessarily have seen the cage or know anything about it it's at that absolutely point. Absolutely retcon. <laughs> yeah. 
and Aaron, as you said, it's kind of the D&D mission because we get introduced to each of these people and their specialties. And Char obviously can fly, and this is uh, going to be about his people. We meet uh, Sword, who kind of is reptilianish and looks like the, our warrior. We got M3 Green, who is our is he's our uh, thief because he's a lockpicker. And we have Laura, who is a human hunter, and she has flawless directional sense. And then you have Kirk and Spock. You have you got uh, Kirk and Spock. Spock for his scientific uh, abilities and uh, Kirk for his leadership abilities. So my question for for Aaron is: Who voiced M three Green, and why did this person voice M three Green? Uh, that was voiced by David Gerald, who was also writer of the original Triples episode and. Uh, trials and tribulation. No, sorry, not trials and tribulations. Uh, more triples, more troubles, and then later, Bem. Um, but yeah, so he he wanted to get his SAG card, and that was a basically a, a quick, cheap way for them to to let him do something, and he could get his card. It was a very cheap way, as it turns out. Uh, Gerald was quoted as saying, "I said to director Hal Sutherland, I need my SAG card. Please let me do a voice." He said, well, we don't really have it in the budget for, to do guest stars, but you brought in Stanley Adams for the trial uh, for More Troubles, More Troubles and Roger C. Carmel for Mud's Passion. We've got enough in the budget for one little voiceover. It was seventy five dollars, but it was <laughs> enough for me to get my SAG card. So <laughs> it was a little, little bit of money, but he got a SAG card. So there you go. There you go. And what we hear, we basically hear what's happened, which is that. Char's people used to be this terrifying warrior-like people, and then there was a savior, a religious savior, came along who convinced them to live a life of peace. They preserved his brain in some sort of an altar, and that that has disappeared. And now the scary thing is, these people might go back to war, and they breed so fast. Spock says, "It is a very real threat." In two standard years, the existing score could breed an army of two hundred billion warriors. This uh, episode, as it progresses, and when we get to the end, there was a, a big epiphany I had watching the climax of this episode, and I'll, I'll get into that when we get there, but I just want to tease that you know you, you just never know what, what you're going to be reminded of, what you're going to think of, and how you're going to like uh, uh, tie all the stuff together when you go back and rewatch these things. And that's one of the seriously, one of the great joys of doing this podcast is the way that Steve and I have like connected the dots and created this overreaching arch throughout the uh, original series and now into the animated series. But, uh, but Lara, the hunter who has uh, the hots for, for <laughs> Captain Kirk. So I originally thought that that was going to be voiced by major Barrett, but as it turns out, it was not And Aaron. Can you tell us who voiced Laura and why Mitchell Barrett did not do the voiceover for this character. Uh, that was voiceover by Jane Webb, who did a lot of other cartoons. She worked on Filmation's, um, the, what is it? Not from the original movie with Raquel Welch. And it was uh, a fantastic voyage. That oh, was a, oh, okay. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So she was the astronaut on fantastic voyage, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, it would have been uh, Majel Barrett, but Majel Barrett was in the hospital having Rod Roddenberry. <laughs> oh wow! Yes, yep. yeah. She was. Uh, she gave birth to the uh, the only son that Gene and Majel had, uh, Eugene Rod Roddenberry. Uh, everybody calls him Rod. Who I gotta say is like super super nice guy. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've 
talked to many, many times over the years. And, you know, uh, he, he, last time I saw him, he says, I, I just love how you're like a cheerleader for Star Trek. And I'm like, uh, I've got my pom poms. I've had them for all these years. <laughs> um, Tribbles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, before we move forward, I would like to, because this is an episode which has a twist at the end, I would like to ruin that twist right now and <gasps> ask about sort of because it's always fun to me to kind of go well how, what's really going on <laughs> now that we know the twist and so the twist is that T'Char is actually the bad guy is that he is joining this expedition to stop them from recovering the soul is that is that correct yes well, and right. no. <laughs> well, well actually what T'Char wants is to take his his race out of the out of sort of like the the pacifist ways that it's now in. He wants to restore their warlike qualities. And uh, you know, since we're we're, you know, spoiling the ending here, you know, I'm sure it's not that much of a spoiler, especially because so many people rewatch these episodes before they listen to Enterprise Incidents. But that is Steve, what take finish your thought. Well, my my thought is it, it really just makes this whole thing not particularly make sense because <laughs> if the goal, if T'Char's goal is for the information to get out that the soul has been stolen because that's what's going to send his people on the warpath, why not just tell everyone the thing's been stolen? Why go on this whole mission? I, and also he knows where it is, so he could have just put it somewhere that everyone would find it rather than on some desolate planet where no one can get to it. Like I, it, it does, it, it's his motivation to me does not make sense. I think the only thing that saves that is they do mention that basically he's crazy, that he has a, a you know, they have, they're going to take him back and, and rehabilitate him and make him come to his senses, essentially. So it's possible that what he was doing didn't make sense because of some sort of brain imbalance um, or, well, well, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you know what, Steve, I, I got to admit that I was also questioning the logic of the uh, plotting uh, yeah. as I was watching this episode, like why, uh, if if you knew where it was, what do you need the other members of the expedition for? Or, you know, if if the work got out, you know, they would resort to their warring ways, which is exactly what T'Char wants. T'Char wants uh the, the scar to be Klingons. <laughs> basically, yeah. yes. He wants them to return to their warlike uh sensibilities because that was their purpose. And in the Klingons, and I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron, because that's the seg into the epiphany I had. Okay, Steve, I'm going to ask you, having war as a purpose and not adjusting to a peacetime timeline, what does that make you think of? Um, I don't know. I'm not, no, I'm not sure. What, what, you obviously are thinking of something. So. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. here you have this chance for the Klingons and the Federation to be friends. And there is no, no peace in our time, Captain. Uh, right. And if there is peace, then a lot, of, a lot of officials and bureaucrats who have made their livelihoods and their purpose out of war, what are they going to do? So here's the char saying, I don't like being in peace. So, you know, it doesn't give our race any purpose. I'm going to restore the purpose of our race by resorting to, to warlike uh, to our warlike ways. And uh, that reminded me of, of, you know, Star Trek six Kirk says we can be, people can be very frightened of changed. And that's what the, that's certainly to who's out of his, uh, 
you know, feather headed mind anyway, uh, <laughs> is already thinking that way. But it did make me connect uh, this final episode of season one of the animated series to the final movie featuring the original, the entire original series cast, Star Trek. And what's interesting at the time, that wasn't very Klingon, or at least that we knew of. I mean, because that basically that sort of backstory developed during TNG. So right. I can definitely see in the movies. Um, so I definitely see like how that could even been an inspiration or at least, you know, pre possibly who knows? Season. Yeah. Denny Martin Flynn. What well, didn't Denny Martin Flynn write uh, Star Trek six? I wonder if he uh, had that he had in mind when he, uh, when he, when he was writing, maybe, you, you know, what's interesting. And maybe it goes back to the writer saying, this is a message episode. I actually think this conversation about T'Char and his motivations, there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff that obviously this animated episode's not going to deal with, but it just suddenly occurred to me, um, what's the name, Scott, in Savage Curtain of the Vulcan um, who brought the Vulcans to the direction of peace? What's the character's name? Oh, oh uh, uh, Surak. Surak. Yeah. I just suddenly went, you know, it'd be a really interesting episode of live action Star Trek is to have this story, except that it's about the Vulcans. And it's about a guy rejecting Surak and wanting to bring the Vulcans back to their warlike state and how dangerous a warlike Vulcan would be. And I was like, ooh, that would be. And then you could really get into the choices for peace and all those sort of things. It would be. A you really could even have something that's like, because the score, the, uh, what is it? The soul of Alar is a, very much like a Katra. So you've kind of got that in there. Oh, that's a great oh, idea. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And and look, the, uh, uh, you know, the Steve, the idea you're proposing is basically saying like, if someone's defying, you know, Serac's uh, decision yeah. to shed emotions and be peaceful. Star you know, Trek five a little bit. Right, a little bit, but yeah. he's also, you know, that's also a concept where you're saying, look, the the, the Romulans were right to not give exactly. up their their warlike tendencies. Um, but that is not the episode that we're discussing. What we're discussing <laughs> is is going on the Mission Impossible to recover the soul of Alar, and that is why the Vidala put them together. This this is actually the fourth expedition. Three expeditions have already gone to this crazy planet, and they've all been lost. And so they put together this team to go off to do it. All of them agree, and we get ready to head off. The other thing I was thinking, which might be a reason for why he's there and kind of like trying to get it with the group is if this planet is as bizarre as they say it is and has all these gravitic shifts and stuff, maybe he doesn't know where it is anymore. And he needs those people to help him see it and find it. Right. Chris hmm. senses it. He keeps saying that he, that he senses that it's out there, but uh, you're right. Maybe he just doesn't have the, uh, he can only go so far. He needs people just to kind of like help like with stuff like the rock, you know, the, the volcano and and all this stuff because they, they have, areas of expertise that that char doesn't have yeah um that would explain a lot actually aaron i I, i'm not sure that's actually in the episode but it would make some of the stuff make more sense (laughs) um um so we show up on this planet we have a cool new vehicle to drive around i go wouldn't have been nicer if the vidala gave him a something that flew (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) or Um, hovered at least (laughs) i can tell the way that way are you certain, human? For sure, Birdman. I can't get lost. I can't be fooled about directions. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I like that she has that old sort of Rosie the Riveter sort of delivery in her voice. 
Yeah, she actually sounds better than uh, Machel probably would have done, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just just for variety, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, it was it was nice to hear somebody, and I know that a lot of t- you know early on before everybody really, you know, like you said before, there was an internet and before people knew about you know there was no memory alpha. Um, people swore it was Majel Barrett, and like it, it, no, it's not. It, yeah. You know. Right. So. When you finally get that information, it's great to be able to say, nope. In fact, she was having a baby. (laughs) Strange. Well, strangely enough, it's like actors are good at different stuff. This particular part is one I would have cast Majel Barrett as. Like this, this is, seems to me to be in her wheelhouse the way a bunch of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Weren't. Yeah, exactly. Um, And now we get to this moment that we've hinted at before where she turns to Kirk and says, maybe you got different customs. My world. There's a lot of females, not so many men. Come we find a man attractive, we say so. I'm saying so. How do you find me? This is shoe is on the other foot for once. Yeah. <laughs> and and Kurt, also, he turns her down, you know. Yeah. But but also Lara says, you know, she never liked Vulcans, saying they were cold blooded critters. And of course it's Kirk who comes to Spock's uh, rescue having his back saying, uh, you know, sort of a backhanded compliment, but one done with love. Uh Spock is a Unique personality. <laughs> um, and we check our equipment and we find out we have weapons. Against what? There's no life on this planet. But there is Captain. Ourselves. Mm. Little bit of foreshadowing. Yep. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so we're driving through the rain. There are volcanoes everywhere. There's crazy weather. We'll all die here. A statistical probability. You ever quote anything besides statistics, Vulcan? Yes. But philosophy and poetry are not appropriate here. <laughs> which I think is fun. And then yeah. I, it's, it's weird because it seems like they spot the, the thing where the soul is here, but then in the second act claim that they don't know where it is again, which seems yeah, very you strange. see it in the distance. Uh, I yeah. thought they were close to it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then there's a lava flow and a volcano. Volcanic action is to be expected. Never mind that. You got to get us out of here. And that is the end of act one. Wow. A lot of excitement. A lot of excitement. Gene loved the in animation. You could do lava. So that is put in, I think, pretty much anywhere it made sense. So I thought that was funny. I, I mean, I, this is what's been fun with the animated series is all these things that they get to experience that we couldn't afford to do in the live show. Also, uh, you know, the aliens. I mean, you know, you have uh, a, another cat like species here, uh, the, the Vidala, you know, and they're they look like the Kazinti a little bit, um, yeah. you know, and uh, just for the second time in just a few episodes, you see another another cat-like species. I don't care how uh, much money they would have put into uh, hair, makeup, wardrobe, and costumes in the original show. Uh, that would have looked a little goofy, you know, and of course, a Mares is a, is a cat-like species. What's interesting is in the original script, it actually describes her as more of a lemur. And it's supposed to be much shorter, which I think actually would have been kind of interesting uh, to have her be like, you know, taking it back to D&D, the cartoon where, you know, the dungeon master was like the tiny little guy. Mm-hmm. I could see her being like a, a more of a lemur character. I think that would be because I agree. I think they look like the Kazinti. I think it's yeah. too similar. And that was just a couple of weeks ago that we saw that character. And yeah, I, I, and I love the idea. Well, then it would be it was it's almost becomes like Yoda like or something, you know, the tiny yeah. wise creature. I think that would have been yep. really, a really cool sure. choice. 
Uh, we come back in Act Two with a ridiculously long shot of the Enterprise that's there for no reason whatsoever <laughs> because we're not going to the Enterprise. <laughs> we're not three there. episodes where we don't see the bridge. Yeah, the third oh. episode of the of the yeah. third and final episode where we don't see the bridge at all. By the way, I had this uh, uh, moments, Scott, where you remember when we first started the animated series, and I said that music is going to kill me. <laughs> and I think I've become immune to it. I think it just it's it's played so much that I don't even really notice it as much anymore. So it it didn't kill me. I just I've just learned to block it out, I guess. I, I noticed. I have noticed that you you know you you, you stop being irritated by it. <laughs> I mean, it's still uh, way overused. Um I mean, it's not that I dislike that piece of music, but man, they use it a lot. But yeah, I'm not noticing Aural wallpaper. Anymore. It's just sort of there. Exactly. <laughs> and the lava's coming and Kirk comes up with a plan that we all have to it's it's cool cuz it's we Kirk has a plan and then all of us have to work together to make the plan work, which is we're going to divert the lava. We basically have to soup up the vehicle they're in, so Spock and uh, the thief have to work on that. Char is going to scout for wh where to divert it. And he and Sword, the kind of warrior guy, are going to create an avalanche in order to divert the lava. And it all is pretty exciting, I think. All right. Let me ask you a question. So when you see uh, uh, Kirk and Sword creating that avalanche to uh, to stop the lava flow, at least, at least until they can get out of there, I'm thinking, wow, they went to the top of a high elevation to create an avalanche to stop the lava. <laughs> that made me think of Superman. Superman. The oh, movie. that's not what uh -oh. I thought you were going to say. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. So Superman at the end of that movie, you know, before he like, you know, changes time, he, he creates an avalanche to stop the water from the uh, bursted dam yeah. from, uh, you know, totally killing all the people and destroying all those homes. But what did you think I was going to say, Steve? Well, I see Kirk climbing up to the top of a thing with a big lizard guy, and he's going to knock a big rock down, and I'm thinking about Arena. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Both, yeah. both of those are great observations. <laughs> I'm also thinking they got up that high. Couldn't they just have all got up there and waited for the lava to pass? <laughs> like well, but then they lose their car, which well, they're going to lose anyway. But yeah. And they all work together. They make this happen. They create the avalanche. They get in the car. It's souped up. They're being chased by lava. There's lava and ash raining down on them. It is it, what I'll say. I think this might be the most sort of exciting, well put together action sequence that we've seen in the I animated agree. series. You're right you know? because there's a lot going on at once. Uh, like you pointed out, Steve. You know, there there it's a race against time, literally, to get the get that buggy started. Uh, you know, with M3 Green and uh, overcoming his own cowardice to to yeah. use his skill and, you know, Kirk and Sword working together and, you know, uh, Char to the right now, we plane. still trust him for a bit. And and uh, Laura, you know, saying, oh, we don't need the direction uh, device on the buggy. We can, you know, I've got this down. It's I love like it's like you pointed out, Steve, that that they're all really working together. They're, they all bring something to the table. They need each other and they they. They were aliens at the top uh, to each other at the top of the episode, but they are they are they are cooperating for a unified uh, um, goal. And and there's even just to up the stakes even more the moment where they hit a rock and Spock goes flying, and then Kirk has to you know, and we get the leave me behind, we're not leaving you behind moment. Yeah, that is true Star Trek. Yeah, that Kirk runs back to get Spock, and he says, uh, you know, you should have left me. He's like, but your first duty is to the group. And the mission. Quite right, Spock. And that responsibility includes not losing the best science officer in Starfleet. You know, it goes back to a mock time, you know, yeah. one of the best officers in the fleet. That's that's where we're where the arc that we did with the original series extends to the animated series. 
Well, and the thing, I'll tell you what I think really makes it a good moment is that then they undercut it because then you have Sword, a character who we've just met, say, You two going to argue, honors, or are we going to get on with it? And that to me, it's like, oh, I totally get who this character is. And he's just, we have the sweet moment with Kirk and Spock and he undercuts it, which is great. I think that's mm. a great choice. Can't you see we're doing Star Trek here? <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> um. And then we move from the land of of volcanoes and lava flows to the snow, um, and it is cold and difficult. and And then M is done. He's like, "I can't go anymore. I'm tired. I'm finished." <laughs> kind That's of it. Like we all are right now. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, a little bit tired. <laughs> uh, Sword just picks him up, and they head out because they're going to need him for his lock picking ability. So let, let me ask you a question. So. So like you've pointed out, Steve, like how, you know, you've got all this going on with the volcano and the trying to trying to start the buggy and everything. But then you have this moment where M3 Green, uh, you know, falls when the ice cliff gives way. Spock grabs M3 Green and then Kirk grabs Spock's leg. So Spock doesn't go sliding off the cliff with M3 Green. Uh, Aaron, like, I mean, it's 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 such a quick moment that we see, but it's exciting. I mean, like this is something where you go, like if I was watching this on, you know, January 12th, 1974, I'd be like, wow, this is like as good as any live action adventure that, that, you know, was around at that time. Yeah. And compared to all the other cartoons, it doesn't really, you know, there's no stacking up. In fact, like I was saying until like the next episode, which is the pirates of Orion, which is the first episode of the second season. That's right. Um, that we don't, you know, it seems like they continued more of those stakes into the second season. It feels like it doesn't really lose that momentum, which is great. Yeah, agreed. Then there's this moment, which again, because we've spoiled the end, I want to ask about, which is <laughs> that Sword thinks he see, saw something. And then they talk about, no, there's no life on this planet. And maybe the planet's just getting on his nerves. Did he see something? Yes, I think so. What did he, what did he see? I don't know what he saw, but... Why, why bring it up and why bring it up again? Well, and, and this is when, so in really good screenwriting, and, and this is unfair to some degree to go on the animated series, is the story should work, I always say the story should work backwards and forwards. So if there's a mystery that gets revealed at the end, you should be able to go back through all the moments and go, oh, that's why this happened. So like The Sixth Sense being a perfect example where you have the twist and then you can watch the whole movie again and go, oh, this is so cool. Um, Die Hard is one where the bad guy's plan, which revealed, even though nothing goes the way the bad guy was planned, you understand exactly what his plan was by the time you get to the end of the movie. Sure. Is that is that this, well, there should have been something that Char was doing that led to that when we got to the end, we go, oh, that must have been what Sword thought he saw in this moment. But that, that you know, that is a much higher standard than is that really should be put on an episode of the animated series. Well, I think they still could have ironed out his motivations at least a little bit better. I mean, there's, yeah, yes, it's an animated series episode, but at least it would be nice if it was more consistent about the logic of why he was doing what he was doing. And that, and that happens a lot. I, I think, you know, Steve and I have certainly picked up on, on that many times throughout the uh, first season of the series but I just sort of liken it to that filmation, even though you had Roddenberry, Fontana, David Gerald was very, very, very involved with, with the animated series that season. And you have the many of the writers 
and certainly the actors have returned. I mean, that's why it feels like Star Trek because they're like, let's just do Star Trek and it'll just be shorter and animated. But it's also part of a factory. Filmation was a factory and you had people like Lou Scheimer and Hal Sutherland working on not just a bunch of Star Trek episodes at once, but a bunch of animated shows from other other series. (laughs) Yeah. So like if you're if you're watching and you're seeing a one moment you see Kirk wearing a, a an environmental uh, belt and then the <laughs> next minute it's gone, you know, uh, that's why that happens. Like they're so they, they were sort of stretched very, very thin in turn in terms of like, you know, really having attention to detail like that. And there's also I think, you know, this is something that we don't talk about a lot, but Gene did. Like he wasn't involved until he was involved. So he would come in and suddenly say, okay, this needs 10 rounds of revision. And, you know, Lou Scheimer had to come to him once and say, do you want this on the air? Because if you do, you need to stop, you know, and it's just like, basically. So I could see that maybe this also could be a draft version or something like, you know, something where it's just, it didn't match up between the changes that he had them do. And Dorothy is like, I can't do anything about that. And, you know, then it goes off to, to print. So it's, uh, it's possible. It sounds like G, uh, Roddenberry with the animated series might have been of a bit of a micromanager, you know, like, yeah, he's not involved. He's not involved. Then he comes in and says, got to change all this stuff. And they're well, like, yeah, for an uninvolved wait. as he claimed to be later in life. And, the, you know, it wasn't canon and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it really sounds like, uh, you know, obviously none of us would be sitting here having this conversation without Gene Roddenberry. Right. But <laughs> it's, it sounds like such a mixed bag. You know, I mean, there's so because both are a problem. Where's Gene? And he's off and he's not involved at all. That's a problem. But it's terrible. I don't know if you guys have had a boss. I have. I say he's just a was, client, basically. Yeah. Who who <laughs> would go? Like, yeah. Who would go away? And then right when you're about done would come in at the last minute and want all sorts of changes. And it's like, oh, yep. man, it's killing me. Boy, Every creative oh director boy. I've ever had. <laughs> I worked for someone like that for 17 years. Yeah, it's 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 brutal. It's yeah, brutal. It is. <laughs> um, uh, so creative but, people are like that too. So I mean, there's, there's. I think there's. You have to do a trade off. Basically, you could be super creative, but you also kind of are just a little scattered at that point, or you're just sort of dull and organized. So like, there's sometimes I, not an in between. <laughs> uh, certainly, for many people, you're absolutely right. But I totally reject that. I believe you can be creative. <laughs> I mean, because I teach film yes. school, or you know, it's like as a directing teacher, it's like no, you you need to be both. Like that's what right. that's the way that I think. But but of course, there are tons and tons of people who fit exactly the description you have. But what I'll say, and what's really funny, just to bring this full circle, is that where one of the main places that I learned leadership, one of the great models for leadership for me is, of course, Captain Kirk. And so while Gene Roddenberry might not be a great leader all the time, sometimes he is, maybe sometimes he isn't, Captain Kirk is. And even in this moment in the show where he says, we're tired, sore, hurt, and angry, but we're also just about there. Like that's what a leader does to keep yeah. his team together, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's such a great line too. Uh, that you know, Stephen Candell, who you know, this is his first time writing for Star Trek. He he had Kirk's voice of all the you know Kirk and Spock because they're the main main two yeah. Starfleet players in this episode. He just had those guys down really really well. So he and Lara go to scout ahead. There's more conversation about whether or not there could be life on this planet. More flirting with Kirk and Lara. Yeah, yeah. I find you an attractive man. If we were together, the trip would be easier. 
And if anything happened, why, uh, we'd have some green memories. Kirk turns her down. I already have a lot of green memories. Oh. Maybe some other time, Laura. That is so suggestive. What exactly does that mean, green memories? I, I don't know, but I would I would totally hook up with Laura at the end of the mission. I would say to the <laughs> like, look, 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 we let's get this thing done. But after that, I'll make all the green memories you want. And hey, Vidala, I know you want to send us right back to the ship yeah, where only that. no time has passed. <laughs> but could you give me an extra like an hour or so? I got green memories to make. I'd be like five minutes. I just need five minutes. Fortunately, your green <laughs> memories would fade after time out of, <laughs> over time, I guess. It's funny we're doing we're doing uh, Skyfall on the cinephiles, uh, so we're doing Bond, and we just watched also from Russia with Love for our Patreon, and there's just so many Bond episodes where the final moment is him with the girl, right? You know, and it's like that's what I would ha- I want for this is I want Kirk and Laura that would have been good, you know, in a in a life raft or something at the end, going, <laughs> hey, give us a few more minutes. Oh, like that, like uh, the Spy Who Loved Me and exactly. uh, Moonraker, yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <Yep. laughs> and then we spot the temple. And uh, and we send M off to pick the door. Can you open it? There's no lock. I can't pick. And that is when we fade out because that is the end of Act Two. Uh, we are back in Act Three, and I think they should have put this as the end of Act Two, which is that M says they're on a time trigger. If I don't get all the locks open quickly enough, it explodes. Like that's much better for your act break than yep. just I can Agreed. unlock this. Um, and then, hey, there are these flying dragon creatures that seem very familiar to me. Yeah, and we're, we're, would we have uh, seen those dragon creatures before, Aaron? Well, we would have seen them in the Infinite Vulcan and then reused it again as the, well, Marvel dragons are similar to uh, in the Eye of the Beholder. So, they, you know, the first ones were plants. The second ones, I guess, were biological dragons. And then these Our are mechanical. Yeah, me- mechanized sentinels. Um, and they're flying in and we're firing our phasers at them and one of them explodes and then T'Char is fighting one and they take T'Char away, which of course is a, a plant, I guess. Well, I didn't suspect T'Char until this moment because, hmm. you know, I forgot, I forgot about it. You know, I definitely saw it. You know, there are certain elements about it that I visually remember, but I forgot the plot point about T'Char being a, uh, the uh, saboteur. Um, I, I I like. I wish it was actually in the script, Aaron. I like your idea that that Shachar has actually lost the soul, and that's why he needs this team. Because, and if they had said, you know, somehow we had explained that, I think it would make it better. Because I'm just like, why didn't Shachar just give them the wrong directions with the lava flow so they all get killed? Like, there, it just doesn't make sense what he's been doing this whole time. Yeah. We can't reach the roof from the outside. We'll have to try to get to him from the interior. Which I don't understand at all. I don't like, either. <laughs> I don't understand why he want to get to the roof. You don't know that he's on the roof and it just doesn't, <laughs> yeah, I don't understand what that's about. But the door opens and we have a useless conversation about whether or not we should rest for a while, which is <laughs> totally ridiculous at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they, saying we should press on. Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we do head inside. And we see this strange kind of knotted, glowy thing, which I guess is the soul of Alar. It feels like they should have animated that more in the middle and of the room and up above where it was harder to reach. Because you look at it, it's like, I could just walk over there and grab it. You don't realize (laughs) that it's actually elevated until they they get on the ledge and make their way towards it. 
And you go, oh, okay, now I know why they're doing that. I felt the same way. Why are they climbing up when they could just walk across yeah. the room? So so one of the things I – I probably mentioned this on the show before that I always would do in film school, which is I always would write on the board, don't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is not that you can't trust people, although frequently you can't, but that <laughs> people can't read your mind. And so things that seem obvious to you when you wrote the script, you said, I yeah. want a thing like this actually aren't obvious to other people. And so it's ob- it should have been obvious that this thing needed to be high up in the middle of the room, but no, somehow that didn't get communicated correctly. And the, what you do when you don't trust is that you go and you check and make sure that everybody is, you know, Sidney Lumet's famous quote from his book on directing is, the job of the director is to make sure everybody's making the same movie, which is really hard to do sometimes. And that's, and it's because they're rushed and clearly departments aren't talking to other departments that things like this happen where it's just like this is not how it's supposed to be and they didn't fix it and it then it just goes on the air um yeah i had a co-creator of an improv show it was the same thing it's like well, i was doing one thing and he was doing another and we both swore we were on the same page and we're not so yeah, yeah that's a really good point we're prisoners that's right you're not exactly surprised three previous expeditions tried and were lost the planet is a natural trap, but that's not enough. You suggest sabotage, Captain? Yes, from inside each expedition. And the conclusion they come to is that the Vidalia were right in saying there's no other lives. One of us? It's likely. Approximately 82.5% in favor of the possibility. I always wonder where Spock comes up with some of these numbers. It's like, what, <laughs> what, what, what's the math? I want to know what this math is that you got there. But they see something on the wall and Kirk manages to pull himself up by this seam. He helps Laura up. And now we're up all on this ledge. Things start shaking because of earthquakes. Uh, and they're getting close to the thing. Suddenly, something shoots at them. The last piece of sabotage. I don't know. Have we ever talked about the weird way that Shatner says the word sabotage? I know it's an ongoing thing. He 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 has his way of saying words uh, like uh, in the original series, like uh, this is my chicken sandwich and coffee <laughs> uh, from Trouble Triples. And also yeah. remember in uh, Aaron in the immunity syndrome, he didn't know how to say Lieutenant Kyle's name. He kept calling oh, him right. Mr. Cowell. Uh, oh yeah, that, yeah. Go back that, and rewatch the. Immediate- maybe that's why we got Orions in the next episode. Is it? Oh right, Orion. yeah, oh. yeah. And he, he did it, and now everybody has to just copy it because they're not going to have Shatner re-record. Right, exactly. Right, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Even the writers, like, I have no idea why they did that. I know you are a thousand feet up. No method of reaching the soul except by air, by flight. Char. To char the big reveal uh that was uh, a little a little obvious so you know but like we talked about so uh to char wants to lead his people into the glory into glory to avenge history uh they were a warrior race to score but they are now slaves to the illusion of peace cowards soft in their comfort now is this a uh, the, the interesting question here is that is this sort of a unanimous uh, feeling by the race of the score or is this T'Char being uh, uh, sort of, a, did he did he go all Kurtz, uh, like Apocalypse Now or, you know, Heart of Darkness? And is he just out of his head and, you know, creating this uh, illusion in his own mind? Because he is the one who is missing the purpose. Is he the Admiral Cartwright of, uh, of the Jihad? Is he, you know, played by Brock Peters in Star Trek VI? It feels like it. 
that he's a, that he's an outlier that he's yeah just because they you know they eventually you know we see them again in an, another series and they've been mentioned so it feels like it would have been a lot somebody else would have come along and this would have happened eventually if that okay. was the majority of the people's feelings i think we're also you know i'm speculating into like very like beta canon and stuff like that so yeah totally but, yeah. I, I have two thoughts about it. The first is is that based if the Vidala, who are treated as this very wise race, think there is a real threat, then T'Char can't just be an outlier. Like, it has to be a real thing that if they don't recover this thing, this score might go to war. But that's different than coming up with the idea to begin with. Right. That's just people reacting like, oh, we've had this mental connection to this, you know, peaceful guy in the past and now it's gone it could just be that severed connection could be what sets them off as opposed to somebody wanting to do that to begin with mm -hmm. well, well that, this is yeah no it totally makes sense and this is where this doesn't but this is where this episode doesn't really make sense because well, yeah. it's like so wait are you saying then that this soul thing is like mind controlling all the score that because it's one thing to say, here's this philosopher, and we have this altar to him that's really, really important to us, that's reminding us to be peaceful creatures. It's another to say that it actually is affecting us. I don't know that there's – I mean, it's just – it's it kind of gets into a weird place. And I also go like, yeah. look, if just having one little thing happen can turn you from hundreds <laughs> of years of peace into breeding billions of warriors to go conquer the universe, <laughs> yeah. that seems pretty thin too. Like, it's a bit weird. Well, the question is, how many people would it take to turn that into the whole society into that as opposed to like, I mean, not everybody would would go to war. It could just be the key people that would be able to instigate this is, are the ones that are changed. You know, yeah. I mean, you've got you've got, uh, you know, a leader who wants wants the conflict, wants the war, but you've got a whole uh, civilization that are like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy with the peace. I like living. <laughs> um there are i think there are some good lines in here i like that he i like the line the score were a warrior race now what are we slaves to the illusion of peace exactly the yeah. illusion of peace is the word yeah maybe it is the peace. yeah exactly yeah um and, and then as he talks about you know that this huge war and how many you know people are going to be killed for this we hear the warrior races of the federation will rise to battle the score and i just thought that was sort of an interesting line the warrior races of the federation I think he just meant like the military. <laughs> that's not what he, that's not what's the line is though. The lines is the warrior. Yeah. And I went, well, which are the warrior races? And Dorian. Yeah. Oh, the warrior I mean, races. Can... Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That yeah. is different. That is very yeah. different. And basically it's, you know, score has this warrior mentality that, you know, if you fight better to fight and die than to live in peace. Anyway, he challenges them to battle and he neutralizes the gravity to make them fight like the score. Spock. How long since you worked out in null gravity combat exercises? Last week with you, Captain. Let's go. Uh, how convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm kind of like, why, Kirk, you don't remember that you did this yeah. last week? <laughs> yeah. But I like The Vidala is already taking effect <laughs> before there you I go. even left. <laughs> uh, but I do certainly like the idea that, uh, that they practice in null G and they go to fight him. And they managed to grab him, and I guess that's it. That was not much of a fight <laughs> against Score, but but it does have a sort of a, a TOS kind of feel, so in the way that it ends with a fight, you know, like uh, you know, Space Seed uh, or Court Martial, 
you know, that back in, you know, sixties, yeah. that's sort of like, you know, was the thing for the original series to do was to end with this big, big, uh, uh totally. you know, fist fight. Um, and they grab him and he says, let me die. And they say, you're going back with us. They all beam away. We're back with Vidala who are happy that we've won. What about Char? How are you going to punish him? He will be healed of his madness. He is proud, brave, that he will remain, but he will also be sane and whole again. Let me ask you a question. Who are the Vidala? Like, are they, are they galactic peacekeepers? Are they like the Organians? Like, who are they? Like, like there's a big picture here with the Vidal, the, the Vidalan race that I think is really fascinating. And there's only so much that you could explore like that within a 24 minute episode, including yeah. beginning and ending credits. But I, I just found myself at the end of the episode going like, wait a minute, there's a whole big picture here with the Vidal uh, that I find really, really interesting. And you know, so many times we've we've seen the Federation, we've seen the Enterprise crew, you know, with all the power, the, the mighty starship and and their uh, ability to transport and, you know, go warp speed. And then you realize that there are easily many, many other races in the galaxy that are far more advanced than than the Federation. And I think that the Vidala is is another one of them. They are uh, you know, wiser in some ways and certainly powerful, being able to just transport the uh the, the expedition to this uh mad planet you know which is described at the beginning and uh i just kind of like you know looking at at uh some of the all-powerful races that we've seen throughout star trek not just the original series but all of the shows uh you know where do, do, does the do the vidalans fit in aaron what do you think to me the vidalans are in another franchise the vorlons from Babylon Five, they're basically the the old race. There, and I have a feeling that they just don't get involved most of the time. Like the yes, a, a giant uh, warrior uh, race wreaking havoc in the galaxy. That's going to put a dent in whatever they're doing. So they're going to stop that. But I feel like we just don't see them otherwise. I mean, yeah. they're kind of they're like uh, we're above this. <laughs> we'll just <laughs> we'll only check in when we need to. I mean, that's obviously just an intuition, but you know that it has that feeling. That's the sense I get too, and I I like the idea of this race in in the Star Trek world, and I kind of wish yeah. there was more of them. I think yeah. an, that would be an interesting addition. There will be no questions, no medals, only our thanks, and in time, even the memory will be gone from you. So they're gonna they're gonna forget this all eventually too, huh? They are gonna forget, which makes me think like you know Kirk should have uh, you know made some time for Lara. <laughs> you say even more so because he won't remember it eventually <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> um uh and we are back in the transporter room and sulu says captain mr spock what happened and we find out that they only left like two minutes ago a moment ago yeah yeah what happens if they write all this stuff down or they one day look like what is this <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> the dollar changed their minds a dangerous past Back to your stations. We have a lot of other places to go. So Kirk has kept the secret. He, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, first of all, I, I never understood what why they established this thing that there was a, a time element to this uh, this this quest uh, to, to find the soul 
but there was because you know they came back to the enterprise pretty soon after they left. You know, I'm not sure why that had anything to do with anything, but what does matter is that Kirk, you know, kept his promise to the Vidalans, and uh, he just said, "Nope, uh, they changed their minds. Let's let's go. We got stuff to do." I wonder if the other expeditions all happened within seconds of them being there. Like if this was all done very quickly, like it disappears, they find it, it's back. Like there's no blip of, you know, hardly at all, but all of this other stuff did transpire just in the, this pocket of time. And I wonder what other races were part of those expeditions. Really interesting. Yep. You you know what? It it actually relates to me, Scott, to your previous question about who the Vidala are in relation to like the other more powerful uh, races we met, like the Metreons or the Organians. Yep. Is that they're clearly they can mess with time and memories in a pretty powerful way. So they they might not be up at Organian level, but they're probably seem like pretty powerful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think uh, the Metrons is another great example, too. They're powerful, but I think the Organians like really like take the cake with that kind of uh, a power, uh, you know, uh, you know, to the point where they don't even need the physical uh, body anymore. Yeah. Well, how do the Q and the Organians like match up? I wonder. Sargon, <laughs> Sargon, and you know, uh, I think I here here I think this would be a th- this is a fun geeky challenge for everybody listening to the to Enterprise incidents. Rank the super powerful aliens. What <laughs> who is most powerful? For me, I think Q is at the top. It is that, that they seem to be at the top. Maybe there's someone more powerful than the Q, but like I, you know, like I kind of put Sargon a little bit below the Organians, but um, you know, because the Organians have to work together, whereas the Q could do more stuff on their own. You know, I there's think also so. the, like you said, the Metrons, and there's also uh, the Thasians from uh, Charlie X. Right, right. Uh, very, very powerful. I love, I love this. I mean, you know, maybe even you know Yarnix people from. Uh, uh, from the Savage Curtain because of the way he was able to just create a habitable uh, environment on an otherwise very, very inhospitable atmosphere. But yes, so the challenge is uh, for everyone listening to this episode of Enterprise Incidents, so think of the animated series and think of the original series. Go to our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents, and rank rank the most powerful alien races from from most powerful to least powerful from the original series and the animated series. And, and, and we had to have Q in there too. So like, uh, yeah, cause I th- throw Q in, and throw Q in as well. <laughs> My headcanon is that Lucian and all those that there are, they're either Q earlier in the timeline or a proto Q society. Lucian from the magics yeah. of Megas two. Wow. Well, I don't know. I mean, he's obsessed with humans. He snaps and a flash happens no. and they go somewhere. I mean, there's it's, it's some there. Well, I think totally makes sense. Well, and they put humans on trial, which is what yeah. Q is doing. Exactly. I think that totally makes sense as them as the proto Q, but also way less powerful because they're scared of a bunch of witch hunters in Salem, you know, burning them at the stake, which I don't think would bother the Organians, the Metrons, or Q. Like, I don't think they'd have a problem with those things. I'm going to go out there and say that this has to be the geekiest portion of conversation <laughs> we've ever had on Enterprises. <laughs> and we are proud of it. We are the badge of honor, badge of honor. <laughs> so, so as it turned out, I had no idea, but Stephen Kendall was very proud of this episode of the jihad he said it worked out very well in fact i won a humanitarian award for it which i didn't know uh aaron do you have any more information on no that? we actually looked for that we couldn't find any information so i don't know if that's something that was just you know like maybe a fan club did it or yeah or, or it was, you know, something that wasn't quite it. as official yeah um but yeah i i 
it's one of those things that I think I'll eventually one day I'll either stumble across it and go, oh, that's what he was talking about, or we'll just never know. Well, I, I think regardless of of you know the animation, like being able to have uh, you know beings like uh, Tachar fly around, you know, wearing the bird suit and and the uh, uh, Vidalans, uh, you know, looking like cat, cats, uh, you know, with the the feline species. I think that if this had bridged the gap with some of the plot points we had issues with, uh, had maybe a rewrite or two, it would have it would have made a really stellar third season episode of the original series. I really like this episode a lot, and uh, it kind of goes along with some of the more recent episodes of the animated series we talked about here on Enterprise. And since like I, the Beholder, I thought was much, much better than Memory memory uh, served, and uh, so so does this one. And I think it's a good close to season one of the animated series. I feel the same way. I really, despite the nitpicky things about the plot that that didn't don't quite make sense on further reflection. You're not supposed to have further reflection on the animated series in that way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so it's it's uh-huh. kind of okay that they don't. And I think it's a good adventure with nice adventure set pieces. And I really like the idea of let's meet some new characters. And the, the thing that I think they did the best was defining all of these characters right away, and so that we understood who we're dealing with. So I think it was a lot of fun. How about you, Aaron? What about you, Aaron? Yeah. I, I definitely think it was more about like the characters and the journey. It, it's I was thinking about this, like I've watched this show since I've been four. So <laughs> there is no more like, oh, I guess that Char is the one who's the bad guy. It's just been the bad guy. And I've, ne- you know, I've never really looked for those connections. So when I went back and did that, I was like, eh, maybe I'll just not look there anymore because <laughs> you can't really see it. Um, but no, I just I loved just the whole idea of them going on an adventure and all these different races and working together. It, it was quintessentially Star Trek too, in that sense. For sure. And, and just, you know, sort of the icing on the cake where, where, you know, the, the moments where, or, you know, that moment where, you know, Spock is like, no, go, like, go. Like when he was trying to tell the, yeah. the expedition to move on, you know, took me back to the Galileo seven where he's like, take off, take off. And they went back to save him, you know, Kirk goes back to save him. And then, yeah. you know, Spock is trying to save M three green and, and then Kirk grabs his leg. So Spock doesn't go fa- sliding off the cliff with M three green. You know, I love moments like that and, you know, quintessential Star Trek, you know, you don't really have Dr. McCoy in this episode, um, which would have been interesting if he was on the planet, but all he probably would have done. You still get snarky comments to Spock. So that's, you know, that, that is there. Well, you know, my question, Aaron, is uh, now that we have sort of wrapped up our, our take on season one of the animated series, what episodes from season one of the animated show do you think are the standouts? Obviously, you know, I'm guessing yesteryear is on your list, but what, what are yeah, some of the other? I always, I always uh, whenever I do a list, I just sort of automatically take yesteryear out because it just, it just is so good and people know it. So discounting that, um, one of our planets is missing is one of my favorites, just because everybody gets something to do. It's, deciding that okay this thing that we were going to destroy because we don't understand it is actually a living being and then convincing that person not to do any harm to them um, just yeah i just i felt that that was one of those okay this encapsulates star trek even like the original series it's like if you had to pick one it's sort of like okay that that says star trek i love that um i love the time trap just because it's it's just fun and and it's also working together there's a lot of that working together thing in in these episodes but just the fact that the the klingons take you know uh klingons take credit for getting out when they're in enterprise is like whatever just let them do that (laughs) i thought that was great it was you know it's like we're we're home it doesn't matter but just seeing the 
the people who lived inside the uh, anomaly being basically a, their own little federation. So I thought that was pretty cool. What about you, Steve? What are the standouts uh, of season one for you? Um, it's funny to me that I my perception was going to be that I was going to like yesteryear and then the rest of them, I probably wouldn't like most of them all that much. And, and I do like yesteryear. And the interesting thing about yesteryear is that it's the only one really that has some real emotion and emotional heft to it. And so I think that obviously stands out for that reason. But in terms of fun, like things like the Territon incident where they're all small, is just I like as we talked about when we did the show. The end totally falls apart. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but seeing them navigate the Enterprise when they're small is fun. I agree uh, about the time trap. I agree about one of our planets is missing. I also like the ambergris element. I think there's a lot of stuff in there that's 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 interesting. Particularly Spock's or Kirk saying, "I can't you know command the Enterprise from inside an aquarium." <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed this one, the Jihad. I think is good. How about you, Scott? Uh, I I think you both hit all the points for the highlights of season one of the animated series. You know. Clearly, the uh, I would say yesteryear is the Citizen Kane of the animated series. <laughs> you know, Steve, you heard me use that uh, uh, comparison so many times on the Cinephiles. Um, what you should listen to our deep dive of the Social Network, three parts. That's a yeah. duty. Uh, but definitely, I mean, you know, yesteryear just is. It's a beautiful episode. It's the only one that Dorothy Fontana wrote. Uh, has credit for for writing. I'm sure she did other rewrites. The Time yeah. Trap is a really really fun episode. And like you pointed out, you know the whole concept of of working together, you know, and having the the Klingons and the Federation, you know, the Klingon ship and the Enterprise forge an uneasy alliance to get out of the trap, only to be almost uh, destroyed by the Klingons. And you're right at the end, Aaron. You know, Kirk is like, doesn't matter. What matters is straight ahead. You know, you know, ahead warp one, uh, whatever. Um, but definitely, yes, one of our planets is missing is a great episode, you know, because you have so much going on and the balance is is really, really fine in the way that they balance this this cloud and, you know, what it's going to mean to a Commodore, you know, Wesley, who's, uh, uh, you know, governing the planet. And, you know, Kirk is like, what do I do, you know, with this burden of uh, does he kill uh, a few to save millions? Uh, you know, that's all that's all classic stuff. And I think one of our planets is missing is one of the episodes that they recorded while the cast was all there at Filmation, which I feel like, you know, that's one of the reasons why it sounds as vital as it does. Uh, but I like this episode a lot too. The Jihad, I, 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 the Beholder was another one that I remember, Steve, we were talking, it kind of started off slow, but once it really got going, it got good. Um, so Aaron, now that we are at the end of season one, why does season two only have six episodes? Because that was the standard for animation back in the 70s, uh, up until like mid 80s, I think. It, you get a longer first season and a shorter second season. It's just enough that they can use it as a package to rerun over time. So the idea was that kids wouldn't know the difference between an old and new episode, which is ridiculous because they <laughs> yeah. uh, so the idea was just you, you'd have the ep- short amount of episodes in season two and then you'd sprinkle in from season one. So you created the same uh, length, but just by reusing episodes. And it was always intended to be only two seasons. Is that correct? I think it was intended to be only two seasons unless it was like some huge runaway hit. And then they would have probably made more. But yeah, it was it was they got a two season package and then that's what it was. Well, something happened in season two 
that really justified not only the animated series, but Star Trek as a whole, something really special that hasn't really happened since. What was that, Aaron? They won an Emmy for How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. So it hadn't happened before, and it hasn't happened after for, like, story. So, yeah, it was uh, the Daytime Emmy Award. There's a, there's a picture in your book uh, of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of them holding uh, the Emmy for uh, Outstanding uh, Children's Program, Daytime Emmy. And, you know, i got to say, even though season two only has six episodes, I think they're you know, from from recollection and certainly reading ahead in your book and going, oh, I remember this, I remember this. And I certainly remember the last episode of not just the second season, but of the animated series period, which is the counterclock incident, which uh, is a just like, uh, uh, you know, Steve, like you pointed out with the, the turret incident where they get younger, you know, they, they shrink. Um, this is another episode like the deadly years where they get younger instead of getting older. And, uh, you know, the enterprise crew gets so young that they can't operate the enterprise, leaving the oldest person on the enterprise, captain Robert April, the first captain of the enterprise to take over. It's such a sort of like a, a wrapping the animated series up in a bow, having like captain Robert April, who, uh, up, up to that point was, was just a, like envisioned to be the first captain of the Enterprise when Roddenberry uh, submitted his uh, March four, March eleventh, nineteen sixty four pitch. But uh, Steve, uh, are there any episodes of season two that you're looking forward to diving into? Um, I'm looking forward to that one. I don't remember what they are. You asked that like I can remember the episodes. I don't. <laughs> so there's a so little I, connection this all- to this episode in there is because Fred Bronson is the one who got the LA Times to come out and take picture of Majel once uh, the baby was born. So those photos that you see are at the behest of the publicity guy, Fred Bronson, asking them to come out. So so Fred Bronson was the publicity guy for the animated series. He also wrote that last episode under a pseudonym. Correct. But, because uh, he wasn't supposed to be doing that, basically. But listen, I, I just I think the animated series, uh, is, I, mean, I can't believe we're almost like at the end. We only have six more episodes of the animated series to go. Uh, but for everyone listening, uh, if you've been listening to Enterprise Incidents all this time and you love the animated series or you have rediscovered the animated series, then most likely and hopefully not the case. But if this is missing from your bookshelf, Please do a course correction to that problem. Make sure that you go on Amazon and you purchase that excellent book written by Aaron Harvey and Rich Shepis, Star Trek, The Official Guide to the Animated Series. I love this book. I am so excited and proud. Every time I take it off my bookshelf to do my research for the next episode, we'll cover on Enterprise Incidents, and I love putting it back on my shelf. I have it, Aaron, I have it on my bookshelf in between uh, the Lost Scenes book of the original series and my first printing of the Star Trek compendium written by Alan Asherman. That nice. is where your book sits on my bookshelf. It's very chronologically correct. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly. That's, why, that's <laughs> exactly why I did it too. <laughs> that's great. So that's what we think of the Jihad. Of course, we always want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear your rankings of the most powerful races. We want to hear your thoughts about season one of the animated series and what are your favorite or maybe even some of your least favorite episodes. The best place to do that would be on our Facebook page where you can search for Enterprise Incidents. You could also uh, join the conversation on Twitter at Enter Incidents, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. You could subscribe to the show everywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. 
and leave your uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts. And I believe you can also now leave reviews on Spotify. So that helps us as well. Uh, so please rate the show there. It helps us go up in the rankings. If you want to support the show, you can do it right in the show notes. There is a link to Spotify for podcasters where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. And you can also follow me on Twitter at SR Morris, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was looking for movies where you put the team together to go off on a big adventure. And guess what? There are a whole lot of them that we've covered on the cinephiles, including Armageddon, The Dirty Dozen, Aliens, Inglorious Bastards, Silverado, The Untouchables, 13 Assassins, Ocean's Eleven, Magnificent Seven, and of course, one of the greatest films of all time. The Seven Samurai, all of those are episodes we've done on The Cinephiles. But you Scott have not ha- done any episodes of Mission Impossible? Not one. Nope. Well, <laughs> I think you should correct that problem because the last three Mission Impossible movies, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout, are fantastic movies. The Mission Impossible series is amazing. Of course, I'm saying this because I'm very excited to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 when that movie opens on July 12th. But I digress. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And like Steve said, you know, please make sure you share uh, Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so people, especially especially Star Trek fans who are not really up to speed with uh, the overlooked animated series, can really discover it for themselves and see how much of a worthy Star Trek series the animated series really is, one that is held up over time and one that is worthy of being celebrated in this year, 2023, which marks the 50th anniversary of the animated series. And I really, really hope that we get to see some kind of real, true, worthy celebration of the animated series during this year when the animated series marks its exact 50th anniversary on September 8th, which is seven years after you know the original series started uh, in uh, 1966. The animated series debuted on September 8th, 1973. And Aaron Harvey, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at GeekFilter and Instagram, same name. Um, and and if you're a friend on Facebook, then you can find me there too. But yeah. Well, thank you again, Aaron, for joining us. And again, be sure to pick up the Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series book. Excellent, excellent book. I cannot recommend it enough. Coming up next on Enterprise Incidents, we start our deep dive into season two of the animated series with our deep dive of the Pirates of Orion. And that is how you pronounce the name. So join us next time (laughs) on Enterprise Incidents. And until then, you know the drill. Keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.